G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. So Tim, I was thinking last week you said that this episode we'll be looking at some stuff that God made that was not so good. What are you talking about? Do you mean like mosquitoes or Monday mornings or skinny jeans, that kind of stuff? <laughs> um, yeah, probably not that sort of thing, but I did really want to talk about some fascinating ideas that have come to us through centuries of tradition. So you mean stuff like blindfold or jousting or chasing a round of cheese down a steep hill? Uh, probably not. But before we get into the main subject matter for today's episode, I, I want to convince some of you of some more good reasons to get on board with the idea of the cosmic temple motif that we talked about last time on the show. And in order to do that, I want you to see in more detail what I mentioned in closing last time, the connections between creation and the abode of God, the tabernacle, some interesting verbal correspondences evident between Moses' construction of the tabernacle in Exodus 39 and 40 and God's creation of the world in Genesis 1. So in Genesis 1:31 says God saw all that he had made and found it very good and when we look in Exodus 39 43 it says and Moses saw that they had performed all the tasks as the Lord had commanded so they had done have another in Genesis 2 verse 1 the heavens and the earth were completed and all their array and in Exodus 39 verse 32 it says thus was completed all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting so we've got this idea of completion there and all that. Then you know, third one in Genesis 2, verse 2, it says, God finished the work which he had been doing. And in Exodus 40, verse 33, it says, when Moses had finished the work. And there's some really strong similarities here in the original language as well. In Genesis 2, verse 3, and God blessed and in Exodus 39, 43, Moses blessed. And in Genesis 2, verse 3, God sanctified. And in Exodus 40, verse 9, there's more sanctification of the tabernacle and all its furnishings. So there's these common phrases and these concepts that tie the creation together with the tabernacle. And those connections go deeper than the English translations. You can take them back to Hebrew and you can see that there's some intentionality behind these correspondences mm, and that's um really quite profound when you think about it. and it ties back into what you were saying uh last week about seeing the tabernacle as like a, a mini mini cosmos yeah that's right but uh now as we continue to look at exodus 40 we're going to see even more convincing evidence so i'm going to read from exodus 40 verses 16 to 35 in the niv Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. And this is the opening statement which sets the scene in parallel with creation. Verse 17. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the month in the second year. When Moses set up the tabernacle, he put the bases in place, erected the frames, inserted the crossbars and set up the posts. Then he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering over the tent as the Lord commanded him. I'm going to see this formulaic expression that comes up as the Lord commanded him. It occurs seven times and this first division sort of mirrors the first day, the creation of space and time. Those uh, occurrences of the phrase don't necessarily 
uh, occur at the same points that you get them, like the division of the days. But uh, you're going to see so many correspondences as we go. So verse 20, he took the tablets of the covenant law and placed them in the ark, attached the poles to the ark and put the atonement cover over it. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung the shielding curtain and shielded the ark of the covenant law as the Lord commanded him. So there we have the creation of the firmament as division between holy places, separating the divine presence. Verse 22, Moses placed the table in front of the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the curtain and set out the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. So we have the creation of land, which is the table, and food, which is the bread, as in day three. Verse 24, he placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. So there we have our luminaries from day four. Verse 26, Moses placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord commanded him. Then he put up the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered on it burnt offerings and grain offerings as the Lord commanded him. Day 6, animals are represented as sacrifices for fellowship. Verse 30, he placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. And Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and feet. They washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. So here we've got man entering sacred space. Note the singular occurrence of as the Lord commanded Moses rather than commanded him. So that's a little difference there. And going on from verse 33, then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work, just like God finished his work on the sixth day. Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So here we have God's rest. Okay, so we read all of that. You probably noticed a lot of those connections, but if you were paying attention, you'd be asking a question right now. Yeah, so how come there are no fish and no birds? That was a big part of what we were looking at earlier in the season. Good question. Yeah, because the swarms of spirits represented in Genesis 1 by the fish and birds are represented here by a cloud of incense. Remember that the creatures of day five are representative of spiritual entities. So the golden altar of incense produces an intangible but easily perceived cloud that also represents the spiritual element of creation. These are things that, despite our experience of them, continue to escape our grasp. You ever try to actually catch a fish with your hand or grab a bird? Like These things are hard to do. Indeed. So the idea is this is something that you can't grasp. So there's something about the fact that there's no fish or birds in the tabernacle, though. For some reason, they aren't included in the same way that everything else is represented. There's a mystery here, and we're going to dive deep into it. So this is getting into the core of our subject matter for today. It starts way back in Genesis 1, of course, and we're going to need a few different resources at our disposal. We're going to look back at Genesis 1, verses 6 to 8 now from the Septuagint. So Genesis 1, verses 6 to 8 in the Lexham English Septuagint. And God said, Let a firmament come into being in the midst of the water, and let a separator be in the midst of the water. And so it happened. And God made the firmament, and God made a separation in the midst of the water that was under the firmament, and in the midst of the water that was upon the firmament. And God named the firmament heaven, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. All right, as if I didn't hate the word firmament enough, then we've got the word vault when we read it. This time, we're going to read from the Masoretic text. We're going to read the NIV, and we'll read the same passage again. 
And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Now, before we talk about the differences between the Masoretic text and the Septuagint, let's have a look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. So what they have to tell us from this fragment dated to the first century in the Hebrew. That's the first century AD. So again, Genesis 1, 6 to 8. This is from the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible. And the fragment that preserves this for us is called 4Q Gen B. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which are under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And there was evening and there was morning a second day. Now, a common criticism of the Masoretic text, which is the one that most people are using that uh, their Bibles are based on, is the relative lateness of the documents and the scarcity of precedence in the Hebrew, right? Because these are really old manuscripts, so a lot of them don't last very long, and we don't have any original texts from the date that they were supposed to have been written. What we have instead is copies that came about later. The Masoretic text is as much as a thousand years more recent than the Septuagint. While it's true that the Masoretic text is going to be at least a couple of centuries after the New Testament, we do have reason to trust it here because the Dead Sea Scrolls, coming from a separate manuscript tradition and in the Hebrew mother tongue, backs up the Masoretic by predating it and giving us a firm foothold in the first century AD. So we're seeing a pattern of Hebrew-speaking Jews using their own textual tradition independently of the Greek Septuagint, even while the New Testament was being formed in a Greek-speaking world. And the New Testament doesn't use Genesis 1 verses 6 to 8 at all. So we can't show that they thought the Greek was authoritative here. In fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls are evidence that may prove the contrary. Both Hebrew texts, the phrase, and God saw that it was good, is missing. In other words, maybe Jews of the Second Temple period didn't consider the firmament to be good, despite the Septuagint's inclusion of the phrase. It kind of looks like the Septuagint translators were preserving some kind of poetic form that may have existed originally, but was later redacted out for theological reasons. I actually looked all over the place to see if I could find some kind of ritual or liturgical purpose behind the inclusion of that phrase in the Greek, but nothing was forthcoming. If you're... Uh pretty clever out there and you think you know of something that might fit the bill for that please drop me a line because i'd love to see it but for now it looks to me like either the septuagint had extra material added for poetic consistency or the existing hebrew texts were later redactions of it and the third possibility that's always on the table is that these are simply separate streams preserved here that didn't interact with each other at all but the textual consensus is telling us that the phrase and god saw that it was good on day two doesn't belong there in our final version Okay, but that still raises the question, what's wrong with the, with the sky? Let's start by remembering what the sky is. According to the biblical worldview on the firmament, and for those who came in late, that's covered in episodes 6 and 7 of the podcast, the expanse of the heavens is an impenetrable division between the abode of God and the great deep, the home of some spiritual forces that influence our world even today. Yeah, so did God make it bad or something? What's, what's the problem? Did God break the firmament? No, we did that back in episode six. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
they kill me. So, uh, yeah, I'd suggest that the problem isn't the firmament itself, but the necessity of it. Why divide the cosmic waters at all unless there was some need to do so? But surely there's nothing in the text that suggests troubling God's good world, right? Well, before I answer that question, remember how we talked in earlier episodes about how the six days where God is creating things, uh, they all work out in pairs, and days one to three pair up with days four to six, respectively. Well, it turns out that when you take day two, the day when the firmament is made and apparently is not good, and you pair it with day five, the day when God made the things that fill the deep and the heavens, there's another problem that corresponds with it. What am I talking about? Here's the text from day five, particularly Genesis 1 verse 21 in the NIV. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. You might be wondering what you've missed. doesn't matter which version you try. You're not going to pick this one unless you're reading the Masoretic text directly in its original Hebrew. And the reason for that is the way the Masoretes not only copied the original manuscripts, but they put in vowel points and grammatical marks to preserve the vocalization and emphasis on the text that had previously gone unwritten. Okay, so the Masoretes, they come from a tradition that preserved the oral Torah. Okay, so these guys are like uh, descended from the Pharisees of Jesus' day and that sort of thing. We think of them as bad guys, but they were very zealous about preserving the text. And that goes for the way that it was read aloud as well as the way it was written. So, of course, you can't preserve vocalization uh, and, and, and send that in a scroll. So the Masoretic text features these marks that are supposed to indicate how you say everything. So what that means is that the scribes, while remaining faithful to the original text, were able to bring out theology that we don't get explicitly stated in the text. And this is how they preserve their understanding of the scriptures. It's harder to see in the Septuagint, but it's still there, just presented differently. And once you see it, you realize what's going on. So I say all that, and I still haven't told you what's going on. All right. So watch this. The Masoretes devised this system of scribal markings and accents that tell you which parts of a Bible verse are associated directly with the verbs. Where there's more than one action in a verse, some of the verse attaches to the first action and the other part associates with the second action. Sometimes the scribes decide to shift that little mark to accentuate the verse differently. This is kind of like that meme where the phrase, let's eat grandma, appears without a comma between eat and grandma, which results in the verb being directly connected to the noun as its object. In other words, this otherwise harmless expression of fellowship has turned into cannibalism. Punctuation matters, people, especially to grandma. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Don't eat your grandma. So that's the role that the Masoretic markings play in guiding biblical interpretation. Here's their verse in question. Again, Genesis 1, verse 21 in the NIV. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. We have two verbs. God created, saw. Normally, the verse would be divided by a tiny mark beneath the text that the scribe would make to show that the subject of the verb was associated with the verb itself, but dissociated with the following verb. That's a disjunctive accent. So we have nouns between two verbs. The placement of that mark becomes critical because it tells you which verb applies to the noun. So the verse starts with, so God created. And then we have a few nouns listed. We got the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird, according to its kind. Now, the clear statement of the text is that God created all of these, and that fact is not in dispute. But where it gets interesting is the following verb. You might have guessed by now. The following statement, and God saw that it was good. 
would normally come after that little disjunctive accent, but the accent has been deliberately put in a different place. Remember how in previous episodes of the podcast I showed that in many cases the creative act of God was not in physically generating material things out of no matter, but in bringing order and function to stuff that was there already or that was formed by natural processes. As an example, God didn't create trees as such. He decreed that the earth should bring the trees forth, and that's what happened. It's indirect creation by God. Now think about that when you read this verse again. This time, we're going to read it from the Septuagint. Genesis 1.21 from the Lexham English Septuagint. And God made the very large fish and every life of living, creeping things that the water brought forth according to their kind and every bird with wings according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. So the Septuagint tells us that there were things that the water brought forth, a detail missing from the Masoretic text. Where the Masoretic text adds detail, however, is in the placement of that accent right after the great sea creatures are mentioned. Yeah, what does that mean? It means that God created the things mentioned in the verse but only the first thing on the list was a direct creation of God ex nihilo. The remaining things were brought forth by natural means or what I'm calling indirect creation. Again, for those who came in late, I've covered creation terminology and how to understand it extensively in previous episodes, so I'm not doing it again here. And it also means that the things God saw as good, moving on to the second verb now, were the birds, the fish, and that's all. The great sea creatures, the tannin were not said to be good. They've been cut off. They've been dissociated from God's pronouncement of goodness. So what we have is a situation where taking both the Hebrew and the Greek, we can see hints that in the Second Temple period, Jews and later Christians held to the idea that the division of the cosmic waters was not good but necessary because the Tananim, the great dragons of the deep, were also not good. Now, for those who've read Answers to Giant Questions, you'll know that the sea monsters, whether you call them the great whales, as in the KJV, or the sea monsters of the RSV, or Los Grandes Monstros Marnos in the Espanol, are references to the cosmic forces of chaos that God has placed in the world. Mm. So if God is all about order, why have chaos? Uh, Doesn't God say that everything is good, very good, in fact, on day six? So what's going on there? Okay, so... Remember how we started this episode and also talked last time about the cosmic temple idea and how the tabernacle reflects the cosmos? Where are the great sea creatures represented in the tabernacle? Well, for that we have to go to Exodus 25, starting from verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering, to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings Exactly, like the pattern I will show you. Okay, so in this passage we have an unassuming little reference to some kind of durable leather. It's actually believed to be the skin of some kind of sea creature, probably a dugong or something like that. 
this kind of thing could be acquired from traders and skins who travel the trade route. So you don't have to worry about where they might have found those uh, laying in the wilderness east of the uh, Dead Sea. The name of the creature is Takash in the Hebrew, and it derives from this idea of living underneath. That word is Takath, so you can see the association there. So we have our creatures of the deep here, and although we can't be certain what species we might be talking about, we ought to know by now that it's not about some literal sea beast. Maybe it's a narwhal. They're cool. They're like sea unicorns. So cute. Yeah, if you like, whatever floats your boat. The uh, skins of this sea creature represent the spiritual entities we know as chaos monsters, and we could maybe tie them to the Babylonian Anunnaki or the leaders of the sons of God or whatever, but you get the idea. These are forces of chaos, and they serve as a means by which God's presence and glory are shielded from lesser beings like ourselves. They obscure God's workings, and they have a part to play in protecting God's space from being profane. Not that God needs protection, but we need protection from him, as he is holy, and we are incapable of being in his presence without our unholiness becoming our undoing. So that's how it's meant to be. God acknowledges that there must be separation between his sacred space and anything that could become corrupt or chaotic or sinful or even evil. And even though he's made everything very good, he knows that there will come a time when that separation will be necessary, when chaos will need to be dealt with, when rebels need to be exiled. The tabernacle had curtains to keep people out of the danger of God's intense power and glory. And the cosmos has agents of chaos in it because God uses them to protect his creation from his holiness at times when things have become corrupted until things are made right again. And the hope of Israel, right, was that this exile, this separation can be overcome by the mercy, by the power of God. And it's going to take someone who can go into the deep to rescue us and come out alive to present us pure before the Father. Yeah, that's why in day six we have man created with the purpose of connecting earthly matter and divine wisdom in a human representation of God. We'll see this again when we talk about Enoch, but of course it's Jesus Christ who ultimately fulfills human destiny after all our failures and sets things right. God himself comes to resolve the tension between the cosmic waters. So I hope you're starting to see now how important it is to not just let your tradition tell you what the text says. You've got to read it carefully, but even that's not going to get you this deep into the scriptures. You need to listen to it and pick up on those nuances. That's made harder when they're lost in translation. And that process is the kind of thing that we're trying to do right here on this podcast. So stick around. We're not far off from our second season. Back for another instalment of our Giant Warfare series from the Serpent Seed Doctrine. That sounds like a pretty cool name for a movie. What have you got for us this week, Tim? Okay, so before I start, I just want to give a shout out to Tanya, who sent us a question. Actually, a few questions, that's cool, via the website. We haven't done a lot of Q&A lately because I wanted to tackle this series, and it turns out that Tanya's questions mostly relate to stuff we've already covered on the show and stuff we're going to be talking about right now. So, Tanya, thanks for getting in touch, and I hope you enjoy listening to all these episodes and getting answers to your giant questions. So we're going to continue now, and we do have some more questions for later. 
Now, we've been doing this series on the Serpent Seed Doctrine for a few episodes now, and we're not running out of material yet. Today, I want to get into some of the things that Jesus said about this as promised last week. So we'll start with Scripture, of course, and here it is from Matthew 23, verses 33 to 36. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify, others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, all of this will come on this generation. Okay, so this is an interesting passage because we've had people use this to say things like, well, the Pharisees must be immortal or something if they were guilty of the murder of Abel. And uh, some other funny ones like, well, this is obviously a comprehensive condemnation of the Pharisees from A to Z since Abel starts with A and Zechariah starts with Z. I realise the Americans all say Z, don't you? Anyway, uh, that, of course, only works in the English language, whether you are American or not, and uh, not in the Greek that was spoken at the time and not even in the Hebrew if you try and take it further back. So that really doesn't work. But this idea of calling the Pharisees snakes and vipers is not Jesus connecting them genetically to the serpent of Genesis 3. There is absolutely no way in which that works. And we've already been through a lot of that in our previous episodes. Another common error that comes out of this passage is the idea that the word generation here refers to some sort of a species, but the Greek word in use, which is genea, refers to the people alive in the current age, literally this generation. Okay, so like we talk about the generation of our parents and the generation of our children, that's what we're talking about here. It's not a species. Right, so that's the end of that one. Nevertheless, people have persisted with endeavours to connect the so-called seed of Satan, which we debunked earlier for those who came in late, with a line of evildoers that we're told are some other species living among us. Reptilians blending into our society and plotting to destroy us from within. I was told there'd be aliens. And I'm not leaving till I get aliens. I demand aliens. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll try harder. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so here's another one. Uh, this is from the Book of Acts, and this time we have a sorcerer. He's a Jewish guy, and his name is an interesting one that I've raised a few eyebrows over the years. Uh, this is Acts 13, verses 6 to 10. They travelled through the whole island till they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? But Jesus is an Aramaic variant which means son of jesus or as it would have been spoken then son of yeshua it doesn't mean antichrist in fact it means the opposite because he claims to be a son of jesus however it's clear that his actions prove the opposite to that and yet again we have a person telling lies in opposition to god who is called a child of the devil i wonder if anyone alive today actually thinks that just because you do something that another person in history has done you must be related to them uh, this next one, I won't spend much time on at all because I've written extensively about it in my book. So if you really want this one, well, the interpretation is not unique to me. You can pick up a Bible commentary. You can just read the Bible itself and have a think about it. But if you want to know my take on it, you can pick up my book, Answers the Giant Questions, and it's written there. But we'll just touch on it very briefly for the sake of being comprehensive. I'm not going to read the whole thing. So Matthew 13, verses 36 to 43. 
again, this is referring to Jesus, then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Okay, so in verse 41, it should be quite apparent that the weeds getting pulled out of the kingdom include everything that causes sin and all who do evil. It doesn't say anything about people with a different skin color. doesn't say anything about people who are secretly aliens or reptiles or anything else. Sorry, Chris. It just talks about sin and evil, so I don't see any evidence of sacred Nephilim bloodlines or any of that kind of rubbish here. You can also contrast that with verse 43, where it speaks about the righteous, and it doesn't say those people whose skin is white or those people who are actually homo sapiens. It just says the righteous. Yeah, and I still don't get how people can be biased against people who look different to how they look. It's odd. Yeah, it's sad, isn't it? Here we've got the passages that I mentioned in closing last weekend. It should be evident once again that this idea of connecting Cain and Satan doesn't mean that we're talking about a bloodline or a separate species. Here's the passage from John 8:44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Once again, we have a connection between the devil and lying, and it says... When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What it doesn't say is, when he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is some sort of weird reptile creature, and anyone who tells lies must actually be some sort of alien or weird gigantic beast that isn't human. Uh, Pretty straightforward. (sighs) All right, here's another one. This is 1 John this time, and once again, we have this disconnection between what's right and wrong, the righteous and the unrighteous. 1 John 3, verses 8 to 10 in the NIV. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Okay, so it should be pretty clear in verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who looks like an alien is not God's child, nor is anyone who is secretly some sort of a reptile or lizard creature. That's obviously not what it says. Again, the children of God are the ones who love their brother and sister. I mean, it couldn't get much clearer. Your brother and your sister. I mean, it doesn't matter what color their skin is. It doesn't matter what country they came from. The Lord has made it very clear. If you don't do what is right, you're not God's child. If you don't love your brother and sister, you're not God's child. And it does not matter what's in your DNA, and it does not matter what you look like. This is nothing more than having love for one another. That's all that God wants. Yeah, it's pretty simple. Uh, So how are people missing these things? The answers are always right there in the text. I know, right? Now, I've already covered the bloodline theory. Um, There will be people who persist because it seems to make so much sense to them because there's a school of thought that exists out there that says that you can follow the descendants of Cain through the Nephilim from Genesis 6 all the way through the biblical narrative to the Pharisees, which is why Jesus was saying these things to them, and it centers around this group that we first find in Joshua 9, 
called the Gibeonites. So these are the people who conned Joshua into sparing them during the conquest of the land of Canaan. And they continued to live and work in Jerusalem as forced labor under Solomon. You remember these were the guys who, who came and presented themselves to Joshua and they were like, oh, look, our clothes are all worn out and our bread's gone moldy because we come from so far away. So, yeah, we're not locals. And Joshua was like, oh, all right then. Well, that's okay. Um, turns out that they were actually Canaanites. So they got in trouble. Um, Joshua put them under a curse and they were forced to labor for the Israelites from that day forth. Now, yeah, they were enlisted in service to help the construction of the temple. Remember back in episode four of this first season, I mentioned this when we talked about megalithic structures and also to assist in the duties of the priests. It is believed that they blended into the society and eventually became the elite classes of the scribes and the Pharisees. They were called the Nethinim. So back when I spoke about the Gnostic text called the Testament of Solomon, I mentioned that there was a possible connection to scripture in that the construction of the temple was assisted by the remnants of the Canaanite tribes. Yeah, I remember that, that conversation. So where did that idea come from again? So Second Chronicles chapter 8, verses 7 to 8. All the people who were left of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, who were not of Israel, from their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel had not destroyed, these Solomon drafted as forced labor, and so they are to this day. Now, you might object that none of those are the so-called Nethinim. Now, it may be that this statement was a general summary that included more than just the specific tribes mentioned, and I think we'll find that's the case as we go on here. So who were the Nethinim? Well, Nethinim basically means the given ones or subjects. You might find uh, Nathanites or Nathanians. Uh, so this was the name that was given to the temple assistants in Jerusalem uh, around the time of the first temple. So it's kind of sad that I have to say this, but it should be obvious enough that just because Nethanim sounds like Nephilim, it doesn't mean that they're connected somehow. <laughs> so you really have to say that? Really? Yeah, I, I did have to say that. Uh, there is no evidence from the book of Joshua that the Gibeonites were of exceptional stature, like the giant tribes such as the Anakim. And obviously they wouldn't be very good at deceiving Joshua into accepting their terms if they were standing there two feet taller than everybody else or whatever the height difference was. Wouldn't have to be that much of a difference. But clearly it didn't make them stand out, so I don't think it's fair that we can say that these were giants. I've already pointed out that the word Nethanim means the given ones, which comes from the root word Natan, which means gift. This is where we get the name Nathan from. It's the same root. Following the practice of things dedicated to temple service, they are given to the Lord. And they're not loaned, they're not sold, they're not borrowed. They are given, and the gift is irrevocable. So that's where the word comes from. It's not related to Nephilim. It was actually King David who appointed them for service of the priests, and you can read that in Ezra chapter 8, verse 20. The same King David who would not rest until the last of the Rephaim and Anakim were wiped out from his land, including, of course, Goliath and his brothers. And Jeremiah 29, verse 5 in the Septuagint attests to that as well. It says, Baldness has come upon Gaza, Ashkelon has been cast off, and the remnant of the Anakim. In other words, they're all gone, they're dead, they're finished, and we've got King David to thank for that. So if David had thought that they were giants or some kind of remnant of the Anakim, then he most certainly would have ensured that they never saw the next generation. But in keeping with what Joshua had established back in Joshua 9, after the deception of the Gibeonites was discovered, they were kept as servants. In fact, they even ended up being put in charge of priestly duties, an offense that God would not pardon. 
This is Ezekiel 44, verses 6 to 9. Say to rebellious Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, enough of your detestable practices, people of Israel. In addition to all your other detestable practices, you brought foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and flesh, into my sanctuary, desecrating my temple while you offered me food, fat and blood, and you broke my covenant. Instead of carrying out your duty in regard to my holy things, you put others in charge of my sanctuary. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. No foreigner uncircumcised in heart and flesh is to enter my sanctuary, not even the foreigners who live among the Israelites. So, you have the Nethanim, formerly known as Gibeonites, formerly known as Hivites. And on the other hand, you have the Kenites. Now, readers of Answers to Giant Questions will know all about the Kenites because I did write about them in the book basically to show that while they appear to be connected back to the line of Cain, the connection is literary, not genealogical or genetic. In other words, they're connected by story to make a point. They're not connected by blood. That's important to remember because not only did we find the Nethanim carrying out temple duties, we also had the Kenites become part of the class of the scribes. So here it is in First Chronicles 2.55. And the clans of scribes who lived at Jabez, the Tirathites, Shimeathites, and Sukkothites, these are the Kenites who came from Hamath, the father of the Rechabites. All right, so we have Nethanim in the temple and Kenites among the scribes. So surely this is why Jesus gets all woe to you scribes and Pharisees, right? Because they're the wrong bloodlines. They're the sons of Cain, the devil's sons, right? Wrong. Jesus is mad at them because they're dishonest. They're liars. They're usurpers. They're greedy. They make it hard for people to express their religion and they're guilty of killing not only the prophets of the past, but even in their own day, they murdered the father of John the Baptist. Remember Zechariah? His name wasn't included just because it starts with Z. I'm just doing that for you Americans. Z. Again, if you're still hooked up on this idea of the devil fathering Cain, go back and listen to some of the previous episodes. And if you're still convinced the Nephilim have survived to this day, please read my book. But I'm telling you now, this serpent seed doctrine has got to stop because it's racist, it's just plain divisive, and it's driving people out of churches because they spend more time smoking weed and watching YouTube than reading the Bible and getting well-grounded and socialized in a church. There, I said it. I feel better. Uh, right, so some scripture, just to uh, get me back in the right frame of mind here. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's Galatians 3.28 from the ESV. Here's another one. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples. Can't be any clearer. Here's Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Yeah, and there's a very similar one in the uh, first chapter of Acts, verse 8. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Very good. And Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, 
excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Amen. Love that verse. All right, we'll have to wrap that up there, but we do have time for a question too. This one comes from Jedediah. Hope you don't mind if we just call you Jed. Australians are no good at long names or even sometimes short names. Uh, we're short on names, so uh, that's a compliment from us to you. So let's get into your question. So Jed contacted us using the contact form on the website, giantanswers.com, which you can do as well. And he says, you said, I think it was you, that Nimrod used a dark energy from below. Well, I have an unusual name as well and can harness forces also history keeps repeating itself so am i nimrod just in another time frame a very interesting question that is a very interesting question um yeah thanks for that jed thanks for getting in touch um yeah thanks for that question and i do appreciate your honesty believe me this is a question that i want to take seriously and respectfully and i'm hoping i can offer some advice here uh, so first, just something about names. Biblical characters usually have a name that the author of Scripture has given to them, and it generally relates to the function that they play in the narrative. So in the case of Nimrod, we're not given his real name. We may never know uh, what it really was, as in the name that his parents gave him. You know, like it's going to be something different written here. As far as Scripture is concerned, he's the rebel. He's the instigator of a rebellion against God. And I just get a sense that that's not who you are, Jed. I think you're a good person. I think you're looking for answers and it can be hard in these times to get a true sense of identity and belonging in the world, especially when you're different. And I can understand what it's like to be spiritually sensitive and active in the spiritual gifts, especially when you're not really sure what's going on and things can be pretty scary. So I just want to offer some general advice and that's going to start with getting to know Jesus Christ and to trust him as the Lord of your life and the Savior of your soul. And as you come to trust Jesus, you'll find a heightened sense of self as well and a sense of where you fit and where you belong in the world. And a big part of that is going to be getting in touch with the church community. I think in your case, uh, given that you've told us that you have particular abilities, you might find that you fit in well at something like a charismatic or perhaps a Pentecostal church where people are quite receptive to the spiritual gifts and can help you get a handle on how to use them appropriately. And if you don't know Jesus yet, then just let me assure you that he doesn't want to strip your power away. If he's made you that way, then he wants you that way. And getting to know Jesus and trusting him is going to be such a benefit for you. Uh, 
uh, and, and you'll grow in those gifts and abilities and you'll be able to use them to help people. And I think that's really going to bring you a sense of satisfaction and a real sense of identity that's going to anchor you and your purpose and place in God's kingdom. And you're going to be able to help a lot of people around you. I think that's going to be really great. So I just want to encourage you, Jed, uh, just get in touch with the church and get involved, get deeper in the word of God and get to understand who Jesus Christ is and trust him to help you sort these things out. And I'm sure that you're going to grow in your gifts and abilities and you'll grow in the knowledge and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can change the world where you are. And yeah, it's going to be a good thing. So I'm looking forward to hearing some feedback and seeing how you go. Uh, Also, I want to say that this idea of time going in cycles and history repeating, that's quite a natural thing. And I think that's the mark of someone who's spiritually sensitive and capable of great wisdom to be able to recognize that. Where real wisdom is found is in recognizing what cycle of life you're in, what part of that journey you're on. Okay, when you recognize something familiar and it comes around again, you're thinking to yourself, I've seen this before. Like, that's the time to stop and ask and say, okay, so what have I learned and what do I do from here to grow beyond the limitations of this cycle? Because once you start to break free of those things, you can start to move out of cycles of past experience, past trauma, past difficulties and problems. And you can start moving into bigger circles of blessing and achievement and good things. So, yeah, it's quite natural to recognize that stuff happens in cycles. That's something that rabbis knew in times past. And as I wrote in my book, you can experience that looking at history. And the lessons of history there to teach us, help us to break those cycles and move on into bigger and better things. So, yeah, I just want to encourage you, Jed. You're not going crazy if you see things repeating and that kind of stuff. It's just a sign that you're beginning to awaken to that recognition that there are things to learn here, opportunities to grow. And that places you in a position to be able to move beyond that into bigger and better things. Okay, so God bless you, mate. Stick around. Keep listening. Keep reading the word of God. Thanks for your questions. I hope this has been good for you, and I hope that's beneficial for those who are listening as well. Uh, and, yeah, we'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. That was really uh, well said, Jim. Very uh, compassionate and wise of you. And, yeah, we hope that um, all of our listeners can certainly grow in their relationship with Christ. It's, it's an awesome place to be. Another quick question, this one from Francis Winslow, who got in touch using the form on the website, giantanswers.com, and asked this question. Were Enki and Enlil, and you will correct me, I'm sure, and you'll take great glee in doing so. Fallen angels or definitely? Uh, you, you did pretty well there, actually. Um, yeah, this, this one's a nice quick one. Basically, you can trace Enki back to Enlil, who, depending on the source material, may actually be the same guy. Often they appear in the same text where Enlil is the senior or higher rank and Enki is a bit lower down the hierarchy, but... It's common to have in ancient texts the idea that the son is the representation of the father. So you get the conflation where Enki is Enlil in some texts. So we may be talking about the same guy here. Okay, so this is like uh, ancient Sumerian and, and Babylonian kind of stuff here. Okay, so we're into Mesopotamian mythology. Uh, Enlil, as I mentioned in an earlier episode of the podcast, is the equivalent to the Hebrew Hillel. And, of course, that name occurs in the famous Fall of Satan discourse in Isaiah 14 as Hillel ben Shakar, or Enlil, son of the dawn, as represented by the appearance of the planet Venus in the sky. So we're talking high rank here as this figure that we've come to know as Satan is elsewhere described as one of the cherubim, to pronounce it more correctly, the cherubim, or throne guardians of God, and that puts him higher than the earthly Nephilim by a long shot, certainly higher than fallen angels. The term angel refers to a role or a job as a messenger. Uh, But since we have no real idea if there are different species, for lack of a better term, of heavenly beings, then I guess fallen angel might suffice. So there you go, Francis, that's a short answer. There's a lot more on all this in my book, Answers to Giant Questions. 
Now, be sure to come back next week for our season wrap where we're just going to chill, chat, and reflect on the season we've had. We're going to pick up some stuff we missed, and we'll do our final Q&A for the season. And then we're going to take a short break before we get into season two. So stick around and make sure you get your questions in for season two. We are going to be tackling Genesis chapter two and the whole Garden of Eden and everything that entails next season. So that's going to be interesting. Send us heaps of questions on the Giants. Send us all your queries about fallen angels and all that kind of stuff. And we will get busy doing some research, pulling stuff together and getting some interesting resources online so that we can give you the most satisfying answers we can offer. We're also going to be dipping into pop culture a lot more. So if you've got questions about how comic books, superheroes and supervillains fit into the broader narrative of biblical truth, then please send those questions in. Oh, yeah. Looking forward to it very much. So catch you next time. Thanks for listening, as always, to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by DJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com. Go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless.